evening. You are listening to the Yena podcast. Today is Wednesday, the 7th of February, 2024. Joining me this evening, I have Bronwyn. Hello, hello. And Mark. Hey, how's it going? It's going not too badly, not too badly. Now that we've talked about all our stuff before we started, what are we going to talk about now? <laughs> Nothing. I think we just maybe hum for an hour, and then and then that can be it. Can we get um? Oh no, I'm not no, sure. No, no. What, what what what's that hurts that we may want to play some tones at? Oh right. Oh, you know, I had an idea. I had an idea years ago to make a podcast that I thought was hilarious. It was going to be a numbers station, but in podcast format. It was just going to be an hour of me reading out numbers: one, seven. Four, four, two, like that. I, I figured it'd be hilarious. And for anybody that doesn't know number stations, look them up. They're a, they're such a cool thing. Um, but yeah, it was like not only was there a podcast already out there that was doing this, there were two of them already that were doing it. It's like <laughs> my idea was so derivative. I'm not even going to bother. Yeah. I figured. Wow, is that is is that the sort of podcast you listen to when you want to go to sleep? <laughs> It probably would be, wouldn't it? As long as you've got the right person's voice, just listening to them recite numbers for an hour, I imagine that would be kind of soothing. It's ASMR spycraft. <laughs> See, now I think I actually should do it still. I, I still think it's a great idea. You want to uh, make world geopolitics unstable for fun and profit, or fun and non-profit, I guess, as you would put it. Suddenly, every nation state in the world is trying to crack my numbers station podcast, <laughs> not realizing that I'm just making it up in my head. Well, these other ones that you found, maybe they aren't uh, just random numbers. Maybe there is some nefarious purpose. Well, that, there is. That, that's absolutely it. I mean, you know, the leading theory is that this is how you transmit to um, spies that you have in other countries. And it's it's all based on a one time pad. Um, like in the British Army, we used to have this thing called Batco. But it's basically a, a system with a one time pad where it's virtually uncrackable unless you know what the pad is. There's no algorithm. There's no maths to it. It's just a, a lookup. And you need to have a copy of the pad in order to be able to decode it, basically. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, so spies know that if they tune into this AM station at this time, if ever like the first eight numbers are their code, then everything after that, they need to pull out their translator and decode it because it'll be some kind of message for them. Hmm. Um, so how were the pads distributed? Well, I guess they would get them before they left. So a one-time pad, you, you know, you can have something that's, it'll last for a while before you've done enough transmission that, people can then reverse engineer it or you just have a set of them in the army we just literally had like a maybe 200 pages and a pad and you'd use one once and then you'd pull it off the pad throw it away and start on the next one and as long mm. as both sides were doing that at the same time or transmitting which page of the pad they were on then you were all good yes right okay and so these right, pads I... were they were all unique right so you know you'd make sure both sides matched up but wherever was printing them they weren't printing the same one again and again they were always printing different ones each time mm, sure yeah yes i guess it would it would it would only be secure if it was sort of uh only two parties communicating i guess if you had if you distributed the pads then it's susceptible to to cracking by a pad falling into the wrong hands. Uh, rubber hose cryptography. Do you know that? 
No. The idea of beating someone with a rubber hose until <laughs> right. they give up the secret. So yes, you <laughs> beat someone until they give you a pad, and then yeah, absolutely, you've you've managed to crack the code. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, I, I is is that rubber hose cryptography something like an idiom? I mean, it's it's. I guess it's known in the cryptography industry. I'm not sure it's an idiom, but I I like your segue. <laughs> well, tell us about tell us about your idioms then. Well, it, my article for this week, idioms were only a small part of it, but the thing I was interested in is it's about a part of skepticism that we probably all do, even non-skeptics, I imagine, would do, but a part that's not fighting the good fight. You know, it's it's away from climate change and conspiracy theories, and th there's a lot of sceptical stuff that's meaningful and important, and we're battling stuff that's making the world a worse place. But I think there's an everyday scepticism that really doesn't matter much in the scheme of things, but it's still, I think there are learning experiences to be had from it. Um, and this is kind of the common misconceptions, the the things that we get told and we just believe throughout our lives, kind of the, the cruft that we build up, that it turns out that it's just not true. Um, that there's a bunch of stuff that we hear, cool stories and little bits of folklore, and they kind of become a part of what we understand. And, you know, the media does it. We we see it in TV shows and movies and everywhere. But there's a lot of these things that I, I think, especially for skeptics and when we become skeptics, and certainly when I became a skeptic, you start to learn, oh, actually, this thing is wrong. But they're, they're little mind worms. They get everywhere and everybody believes them. And I, you know, to me, what, the, what I talk about in the article is two parts of it. One, I get a kind of joy from letting someone know that something they've always believed is wrong. Not in a mean way, but in a, you know, this is cool. You can learn that actually most people don't know the truth about this, but more you've, enjoyable. You've, you've, used, you've used the word actually two times so far and this is just a typical skeptic thing isn't it like somebody says something and then the skeptic pipes up and says actually yeah exactly <laughs> and, and yeah and I, I so i get a joy from that but i get more joy from doing it to myself i get more joy when i find one of these things that i've spent 40 something years now believing and I suddenly learned that I was wrong and I get to correct myself. And I, I really enjoy that. I re and so I, I went on because I my mind blanked when I was writing the articles. I was like, well, there's going to be a list. And sure enough, Wikipedia has the most ridiculously long list of common misconceptions I have ever seen. Uh, just going through it, like I haven't read the whole thing myself, but as I went through it, there were a whole bunch of them that I recognized. And then I started finding ones that I'd never heard of before, you know, stuff I didn't realize. One that came up that I loved that we talked about just a few weeks ago at Skeptics in the Pub was the fact that Napoleon was not really short. He was average for a Frenchman, which was 5'7", which is, I think, a little bit short for an Englishman. But the bigger part of it was that a French foot measurement was different to a British foot measurement. Um, and so I think, what have I got in that? Like five foot two inches in French feet, which is five foot seven inches in British feet. So just a misconception and possibly fueled by animosity between the British and the French as well. Um, but really interesting that that, you know, everybody knows that Napoleon was short. Turns out he wasn't. Things like the not being spelled ye in Middle English, the idea that, you know, ye oldie 
pinball shop that there's a plug for one of our members um and and his shop bronwyn you've been playing pinball there recently haven't you, in Wellington? Uh, yeah yeah no um it's in tiaro it's it's a fun time i'm actually part of the i'm looking into joining the women's pinball league it's Ooh. great uh yeah yeah and um you know the people who own it and the staff are fantastic it's a great time 100 percent recommend if you're in wellington to go check out ye old pinball shop but the ye is not something that was ever in English, even hundreds of years ago. It's just a misconception. Um, and bulls not being able to really see red, but it's more about the movement that they're chasing of um, of the matador's cloak and, and not the fact that it is a red cloak that's being used. Um, and the whole thing of lemmings, which leads you on down a, a rabbit hole of Disney pushing uh, lemmings off a cliff or not, or however that went about. But those are kind of the kinds of things that I really like to learn. I really like being able to correct some of the mental cruft I've got that actually just isn't true. And well, I, I must have say, you guys got list, anything? Well, in, in that list there, I, I did not know about microwave ovens. I always, I always thought I knew that the 2.4 gigahertz was because of the frequency at which water molecules vibrated. So yeah, right. yeah, but it's I mean, not dielectric heating of polar molecules, which I don't understand. But I will go and read that at some point because now I've learned that I'm wrong. I need to know what the truth is. I need to know what is that mechanism of action. And what about the belief that we only use ten? Was it ten percent of our brain? Would that fall in with that category? Yeah, so this was one that Katrina came out with months ago. She wrote an article for us where she had, I think, the uh, the top 10 myths or 10 myths about the brain. And she came on the podcast and we, we talked about a few of these. And again, reading that article of hers, I think at least one of them very much was embedded in my brain, uh, the bystander effect. And it was really nice to be able to clear that one out and learn what the, the reality of it was. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, do you guys do you guys enjoy it when you find out that you were wrong about something? Something? Only if nobody else knows that I was wrong. <laughs> That's totally understandable. <laughs> very, very human, I think. Yeah. But I suppose, you know, your you know, your fellows, your fellow friends and skeptics who may not know about these misconceptions can feel a little bit uh salty when you point out their mistakes. Yeah, and it, it it's got to be done. Probably I don't always do it in the way that it should be done, but I think it's got to be done in a way that, as I say in my article, you, you've got to let them know that it's okay, that most people believe this, that this was something that I believed until recently. You know, that this was something that I only learned two years ago, and now I get to pass it on to you. Like these common misconceptions, you know, you, you'd probably say 90% of people have got the wrong end of the stick with these things. They really are more common than the actual truth by a long way. So... Yeah, it's not like these people who you're pointing it out to were alone. And I think letting them know that, that they're just one of many people because this is what everything is telling us. But it's just not the truth. It uh, reminds me of uh, a job I worked at uh, back in the day where uh, the Internet was relatively new. And um, a co-worker and I used to have these things and I would bet him small amounts of money that I was right about something. Generally, I was, but sometimes I wasn't. But he was gullible enough to believe me when I said I'd Googled something and uh, it turned out I was right, <laughs> even if I wasn't. <laughs> wow. You are evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, sound, that reminds me, actually, of a game many years ago of Trivial Pursuit that I played with my wife and some friends. And my, myself and my, my flatmate, we lost... And we lost very convincingly. 
And I was like, hang on, that that just went too well. It turns out my wife had been making up all the questions, just ignoring the questions on the card and making up a question and making up the answers. And the answers were always different to what we chose. So we were just desperate. But I trusted her the whole time. You know, it sounded plausible enough. It's like, yeah, OK. And it was only at the end that I ended up scratching my head going, wow, I, you know, I really got trounced. And it turns out mm. she just cheated the entire time and lied to me. Uh, and the, the basis of your marriage has now crumbled, has it, Mike? <laughs> it did many years ago. So <laughs> sad. Um. So, yeah, so my article I finished on something I, I had a thought of a few months ago. I like to collect groups of things. And one of the things I started collecting a little while ago was idioms where the common belief about what the idiom means is actually the opposite of what it really means. And as I was looking into trying to collect more of them, I was like, there are actually quite a few of them out there. I was surprised how many idioms most people, like including me, end up using in the totally the wrong direction. Um, and if you guys have read those lists, did you did you know many of the ones on my list? I, I was aware of the jack of all trades and master of none one. Yes. Yeah. My, so my favorite is always the, um, you know, blood is thicker than water. Yeah. And again, both of those are opposite, right? So the jack of all trades, the, the full phrase is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. So it's saying a jack of all trades is actually a useful thing to have. And the blood is thicker than water. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. So people normally think blood, which is family relationships, is thicker than water, which is friendships. But it's the other way around. The blood of the covenant, the covenant you make with friends, is thicker than the water of the womb, which is your family relationship. Um, and then so the one I like is the great minds think alike, which is great minds think alike, though fools seldom differ, which basically mm -hmm. just means I like people will think alike. You know, it doesn't mean you're a genius just because you think the same as someone. Well, well, that's that's often a way of bringing somebody down who's uh, who who's saying, oh, great minds think alike. Yes. <laughs> Didn't we have a great idea together? And then uh, somebody will cut them down by saying, yes, and fools seldom differ. Yeah. Um, and then Curiosity Killed the Cat. I didn't know that one until I was looking them up, but um, it finishes, but Satisfaction brought it back. So actually, you know, the cat didn't have an untimely end because of its curiosity. It turns out it was all fine in the end. Um, and then Starve a Cold, Feed a Fever, which still a quite quite a popular one, I think. But it's if you starve a cold, you'll have to feed a fever, which basically means don't starve a cold because you'll just get even sicker. Probably, you know, biologically, I imagine that is just totally nonsensical, but it's still interesting that it is the opposite to what most people think it's trying to tell mm -hmm. you. And then the last one I found was my country right or wrong, which feels like a very, I guess, for want of a better word, American thing you know i'm behind my country no matter no matter what but it the whole phrase is my country right or wrong if right to be kept right and if wrong to be set right which it ends up accepting that your country can be wrong and if it is you need to fix it not just to assume blindly that your country is always right mm. i can't say i've ever heard of that before yeah so, i haven't yeah. heard that my country right or wrong but oh okay but all, all of these I really enjoyed finding. Um, and again, they're, they're a little thing where, you know, when you can correct someone and when you've corrected yourself and you've you've learned, oh, actually, 
this is totally wrong. We're, we've all been getting it wrong all this time. I, I get this perverse pleasure from it. I really enjoy. And I think it's because, as I said in my article, it's a lack of emotional weight. Like there are some things that we kind of build our worldview on or we rely on in a way as part of who we are. And I think for those, when you learn you got something wrong, that can be kind of embarrassing. But these things, they don't matter. The fact that you've got it wrong, it isn't a problem. It's not embarrassing. You can correct yourself and keep moving without feeling bad. And I, I kind of like that. I And I guess it maybe even it's a good skeptical lesson, learning that you can be wrong and it's okay to be wrong and to learn and to change. And there shouldn't be guilt with that. You know, you, you should be okay with receiving new evidence and changing your belief. Yeah. But as you point out, it's human nature to be embarrassed when we get something wrong and not to want to admit it. And as skeptics, we're fighting against that with ourselves and with other people, that just wanting to double down. Yes, indeed. Very good. Okay, well, we should all be on the lookout for those sorts of things. Yes, but be uh, kind when you point them out in someone else. <laughs> indeed. So um, I wonder if having a brain implant could uh, could improve things in that respect. Oh, I love that idea. It's wrong. <laughs> the, the fact that as soon as you think of a, an idiom that you're about to use wrong, you get this little alarm going off inside your brain, A, letting you know, don't say this, and B, quickly feeding you the correct information. Yes. But of course, the reality is nothing like that. So um, over the past week or so, there's been some news from Neuralink, and Neuralink is Elon Musk's uh, neurotechnology company. And so back on back at the end of January, Elon Musk issued a tweet saying the first human has received an implant from Neuralink yesterday and is recovering well. And he went on to say, initial results show promising neuron spike detection. And basically that's all he wrote. So uh, Katrina wrote about uh, Neuralink last year. There was some kerfuffle about it at the time and uh, she sort of wrote an article about what Elon Musk's plans were for it. It was sort of quite uh, strongly around preventing some future apocalypse by everybody having these chips implanted in their brains and us being able to counteract the uh, dangerous AI because somehow having these chips in the brain in our brains would all make us part of the AI and we could uh, work against the domination of, of AI to the detriment of uh, humanity, which sounded kind of like uh, very far-fetched to me. But also just, just in, in sci-fi concept maybe alone and maybe not reality, the idea that, you know, in sticking technology in your brain that an AI might be able to write a new firmware to, and that's saving us from AI, sounds the opposite of, you know, what at least would happen in a sci-fi dystopia. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can't see that this is going to help. No. Anyway, uh, so Neuralink, at least Musk is claiming, that has got to this particular point where they have been able to um, find a patient to insert a chip into their brain. So the chip itself um, is apparently about the size of a, a large coin. Um, it gets implanted into the brain using a surgical robot. Um, and the reason for that is that the uh, electrodes are very, very thin wires, thinner than a human hair. And so this machine is able to 
do the implant automatically and with great precision uh, versus uh, what what would take the, the skill of a human surgeon to try and perform that that operation. Uh, so in theory, I guess it, it should be a lot safer and faster. So what this device does, it's being implanted over the motor cortex and it's got 1,024 electrodes which are sensing um, signals emitted by the brain uh, in response to somebody thinking about moving or basically trying to move their limbs. And at the moment, the device is being aimed at people who are quadriplegic um, patients who, who've lost the use of their limbs um, and essentially are, are locked into their brains. And this is being touted as a way uh, that somebody can uh, interface with a computer to be able to communicate without having to, well, because they can't communicate because they've lost the use of the use of their spinal cord, which allows them to drive the muscles out of their brain. Uh, this this device has been quite controversial. Musk started the company in about 2016, so he founded it along with seven other engineer scientists. All those seven engineer scientists have now left the company, uh, so there's been quite a lot of controversy around that. And we all know about how uh, Elon Musk tends to hype things. So I, I found it quite interesting that the FDA has now approved this device, or at least that's what Musk is claiming, I, I guess, until we actually see some results, we don't know whether it's true or not. But I guess it's a pretty ballsy move if he uh, was to to make this claim and not actually have followed through by having this actual patient. Um, but the FDA apparently seems to have approved this for investigative use. So you can't go and say, I want one of these things implanted in my brain unless you're prepared to be experimented upon um, and you fall into this particular category of having this... Uh, uh, debilitating dis disability that prevents you from functioning a a, a life where you <laughs> have the use of all your lim limbs and so on. So yeah, so this is being implanted directly into the brain, which to me sounds uh, sounds like a pretty risky thing. The device itself is active; it is apparently a chip, and so it needs to be powered. Um, and there is a lithium battery that is actually implanted along with the device in your brain. So there's all these risks of this technology that could go wrong. Uh, so it's possible, I guess, that the battery could link. Uh, there's been concerns about the electrodes perhaps somehow migrating from um, the position they're implanted into into other parts of the brain with catastrophic effects. Um, and then there's also the possibility that when you go and put a foreign body inside your body, uh, your your body has a tendency to want to reject it. Um, and Neuralink are claiming that uh, they are using a special type of material which is biocompatible, which means that that basically the the our body shouldn't reject it. But I guess this all remains to be seen exactly how successful this is. Yeah, that's, um, that's so, a bit that I was fascinated by, the the 
biocompatible? Like, I know a, a standard thing when you end up with an organ transplant is that you're basically on a regime of taking anti-rejection pills for your entire life. Um, mm. And I guess for organs and big things like that, that's going to be the case. But yeah, what is it that makes this so that the body is less likely to reject it? You know, are they making it more from kind of biological materials that look more native to the body or what have they done? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, that does sound like that's the sort of the sort of thing they're doing. I guess if you take your example of a uh, an organ transplant, it's it's not like they're able to remanufacture the order the organ with uh, materials that that are biocompatible. You are you are taking the organ out of somebody else, and so um, then you do need these anti rejection drugs in order to stop your your body from rejecting it. Um, so I guess yes, you're probably right. There is some sort of materials that they've invented, which at least don't look as much like foreign bodies to the to the body as as somebody else's um, uh, material from their body would would be. Yeah, um, I wonder whether maybe being small helps as well. I, I guess they've gone for compactness with this device. Yeah, it does seem to be pretty small. Um, so this thing gets implanted into the brain. They're claiming that it's it's basically invisible. Um, so it goes in the brain. You, it's not like you've got this um, thing that's sitting on top of your head with a with a port there that's accessible. <laughs> but if you look at the diagram, I mean, it, it's it's a an exploded uh, view of the um, device. It still doesn't look that compact by the time you you fit it in there. I mean, as I said in the article, I'm I'm not a neuroscientist or a brain surgeon, so uh, I'm guessing at some of these things. I think the trouble with the image that you got is there's no banana for scale. So, you know, that <laughs> could be the size of a hockey puck. It could be the size of a 10-cent piece. Well, we do know that the electrodes are smaller than a human hair, and there's 1,024 of them. So that gives you some sort of a scale, I guess. If I could see an individual electrode in the picture, maybe, but yes. I can't. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I, I'm going to have to look into this some more because it, it does look fascinating. And, you know, Musk, for all his many, many flaws, he does somehow manage to drive people to build some cool technology. Yeah. So um, this is this really is the brain-computer interfaces in their infancy. And so the idea of this is that um, the device will interface with an app on your phone and the app on your phone is going to then detect the signals that are coming out of your brain for when the user tries to do something. And this is probably going to be used to, say, drive a, a cursor around a screen or select letters to compose an email or a text or something like that. So it's, it is very primitive technology. And what Musk is pitching is this future where these implants are going to be doing a hell of a lot more than that. Um, I'm certainly sceptical that there's some easy transition from the technology they're experimenting with now to a place where everybody lines up and gets one of these implants in their brain from a surgical robot. Um, and I guess then what happens when the technology changes and you want an upgrade? How easy is it to actually extract this thing from your brain if it goes wrong or if you want the new version that uh, does does something else we so all this, get ports. Is, <laughs> this is one of the times to not be an early adopter basically <laughs> indeed yeah mm -hmm. so people are making parallels with um, this technology with things like the car and how 
people were skeptical about the car when it first came out and then there was this massive adoption but i don't think that's a very good uh, parallel there because the car at least doesn't in, doesn't involve you getting something implanted into your brain and at, at a risk of your <laughs> your life or your health so yeah it is i think we're many decades away from where this will be a routine a thing that people get done um it's likely to remain specialized for quite some mm. time Sorry, I was going to say the applications as well. I wonder how limited they are, because as Katrina talked to us about a few months ago, the latency is a real issue. And it's a real issue with specialist hardware. Um, you know, you look at some of the VR headsets and they spend a lot of money trying to get latency down so that people don't feel sick. But if you're pumping something through a mobile phone that is just not at all optimized for low latency there's going to be very few like there will be some applications where latency doesn't matter but anything where latency does matter it's going to be frustrating i'd imagine mm. yeah I, I guess if you were talking about some distant future where you're not just taking signals out of the brain but you're somehow trying to put signals back into the brain that the brain can then and interpret, then yes, latency may well be an issue there. Um, Even just like moving a mouse or something like, you know, here's a great example. I went out yesterday, went shopping for the uh, the kids to buy them smartwatches to try and get around the smartphone ban in schools. Um, yeah. <laughs> while we were out, there was a very cool controller that was being sold. that had Hall Effect sensors, a games controller for my computer. So I bought it and I tried it last night. And at first it was okay, but then their wireless link to my machine, it suddenly gained latency. And it might only be 50, 60 milliseconds of latency, but that was enough that the game I was playing became frustratingly unplayable. Just that, that little pause between me telling it to do something and it doing something really could not cope with it. I just put it down and picked up my old controller. So <laughs> even even something that doesn't matter that much, the amount of frustration when something doesn't happen immediately when you expect it to, I think that can be really annoying. Yeah. Uh, if you if you try using a remote desktop on a machine on the other side of the world, <laughs> you know what that's like. It's awful. Yep. Absolutely awful. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess some, at some point in the future, so people are worried about, these implants being able to read your thoughts, read your emotions. I think we're a long way from that. Um, and I think there was a study that was done maybe a year or so ago where they looked at um, the signals coming out of people's brains. And I think it was something about how they tried to predict the words that we, people were thinking by looking at the signals coming out of their brains. And one of the things that came out of that study was that every single person's brain is unique. And in order to actually get this sort of thing to work, it needs to be trained on your brain. So there's never going to be this device that you're going to implant in your in your skull, which then knows about your thoughts and how to interpret those thoughts and turn those into words on on a computer screen. There's going to be a whole bunch of training, starting with very simple things and working up. Yeah. Just in reading about this, it turns out that Elon Musk's Neuralink company isn't actually even the first company to to do something like this. There are a whole bunch of companies um, that are in this space. And one interesting one that I found uh, was a company called um, Synchron, um, who have... Um, seem to have a lab in Melbourne in Australia um, and also some headquarters, I think, in the US. And what they've done is they've essentially done what 
Elon Musk was claiming to be able to do with the Neuralink in that they've implanted the sensors into the motor cortex of this man who uh, essentially is locked in. And they've taken a different pr approach by inserting wires via the um, blood vessels in the brain and inserting these micro wires up into the motor cortex. And so they're doing essentially exactly the same thing, but it seems to be like a, a much lower risk um, approach in that it's basically using existing pathways in the brain in order to, to get the electrodes in there. Um, and if you actually go to the Synchron site, you can actually see a video of this guy operating a computer uh, by just thinking about where he wants to move the cursor and, and so on. And it's actually quite actually quite fascinating. And they interviewed his wife and it's been a revolution because um, now he can basically communicate, whereas previously he wasn't able to. So yeah, it is, it is quite amazing. So definitely for, for niche users, I think there are different possibilities of this and we're at the very very beginning of this of this technological curve but i think we're we're many years away from uh, where elon musk wants to hype this as being so yes we we'll definitely have to watch the space um <laughs> apparently the the guy who this no i don't even know it was a guy the person who this thing has been implanted into um it's going to be something like a six-year trial uh, where they will be monitoring how the device works over that time and uh, seeing how it all turns out, and hopefully it turns out okay. Especially because there was a bit of controversy over the past couple of years where they were using animals uh, to test this thing out on, and uh, there were accusations of animal cruelty and uh, a lot of the animals dying and things going badly. So hopefully that doesn't happen with the person that this is implanted into. Mm. And watch this space. You pointed out in your article that, that Bronwyn says that a lot. Bronwyn, did you realise that you say watch this space a lot? Heaps, heaps, because it is. Watch this space. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so much going on, particularly with Istan Hayden. I you like know, so, it. So, so why, why would you know? Why go for a neural chip when you can uh, actually have an ascended master come into your brain and uh, download information <laughs> for you? Well, that, that sounds really good. How how do I get that? Well, you you may want to become a theosophist, or you join the Lucis Trust. Okay, what which many, one's going to cost me less? Which one's cheaper? Ooh, see, the Lucis Trust has lots of reading materials, but a lot of them are online for free. Okay. Unless you say wanted to go for one of their... Um, if, if Oh, I don't know if the University of Seven Rays is still operating. Um, That was for a long time, kind of their online schooling where they would have, you know, you can get a master's or a PhD in esoteric studies or esoteric psychology. So you know you get the you you can get a degree in treating them, you know diseases of the occultist. Well, that that sounds like fun. It is, it is. But theosophy in and of itself, um, it was a really you know these past three or so articles I've been writing over the past couple of months. It's been really interesting to look at theosophy as, if not necessarily the originator of a lot of new age ideas, certainly the one that popularized a lot of them. Uh, you know, the Akashic Records, very big in theosophy, as well as um, anthroposophy. I can never pronounce it. Rudolf Steiner. Um, Rudolf Steiner used to be um, sort of er part of um, theosophy early on before he broke off. You have Share International, which really sort of more so focused in on the cosmology in theosophy, and I think more so with Alice Bailey, um, because within the cosmology of theosophy, there's a belief that, you know, 
you have these ascended masters, which are not necessarily gods, but they are they were once mere men who, through um, a series of a very aesthetic training, they have, you know, they keep a connection to humanity, but they live on a completely different plane, though, depending on what sort of new age belief, there can be some variations to that. So some some fringe groups feel that, no, 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 they live on this ashram in Tibet. Maybe they are actually spirits who live in Mount Shasta in the U.S. These ascended masters consist of, I guess, a, a mixture of actual potential historical religious figures and people who someone's just pulled the name out of their butt and just yeah. run with it, right? Well, I think the accus- uh, I think uh, there was a librarian or a public historian who looked through Helena Blavatsky's work and sort of connected a lot of her ascended masters that she contacted or that she claimed to contact, like Kutumi, Dzhuwal Kul, uh, Master Moria, or Moria. And this just sounds like bad guys from a Ghostbusters movie. Well, well, they sound like, you know, these quasi oriental names, orientalism. He sort of sort of made connections with some of the pictures that were there and the timings that these names came up. And he said, you know, this is probably a representation of a person that she actually knew. Right. So like with something like Jawal Cool, people say, oh, here's a picture of him. And it's potentially actually a picture of a um, one of the llamas. In Tibet, yeah. like an actual yes. human being. It's a picture of him. Not to say that he is Jawal Kool, but that's the representation of him. So th- this is kind of making up this spiritual story, but basing it on real world events and people and, and yeah. stuff in their history. Very much, I guess, like Joseph Smith did, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the place names um, mm-hmm. that he uses in the Book of Mormon come from places local to him and, and things. Like, it's all about what was local to him and what he mm-hmm. knew. And it ends up just being integrated into this story. Mm-hmm that he's weaving it's very syncretic religion you know there's bits of hinduism there's bits of buddhism but also there's a bit of what was the style at the time in terms of spiritualism so as i said the akashic records this idea that there is some record that's in space or that's in the ether that has listed everything that's ever happened and you know everything yeah no i want to have a read of the akashic record it's Mm. going to be kind of interesting even if um, these certain figures weren't actually theosophists they bought into theosophical ideas and were able to bring them in because they were popular. So like Edgar Casey, he thought he he would claim that he was able to read the Akashic records. Rudolf Steiner, who parted ways with theosophy, said he could read them. Uh, the idea of Lemuria, this sunken other Atlantis that's in Australia, wasn't invented by Blavatsky, but she did incorporate those, you know, similar idea into her into her works. So it's kind of, and you know, it's also kind of interesting when I was doing this research to see a very strong New Zealand Australian connection. Charles Leadbeater, who was a prominent figure sort of after Blavatsky died, he ended up sort of spending his last years in Australia. He had a really good friendship with um, Lillian Edger. Lillian Edger was one of the first women in the British Empire to get a university degree, and her sister Kate was the first woman in New Zealand and possibly the second woman in the British Empire to get a university degree. For educated women like Lillian and, say, Annie Besant and Alice Bailey, as I sort of go through in the newsletter articles, Theosophy offered a big opportunity for women to go do something other than have children and be a housewife. You know, it gave them an opportunity to, you know, even if even if we say we look at the works of Theosophy and we look at, you know, the works of Alice Bailey, be like, come on, shenanigans. This is all ridiculous. It's still a lot of work to write all that stuff. Um, They still did a lot of teaching. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And in their own terms, like even within their own field, still had to do a lot of reading and a lot of research and a lot of study and education, even if what they studied absolutely is not within the belief system of 
Okay. Skeptic. So, so we're giving Theosophy at least a thumbs up for being progressive for the time. Yeah, because as I said, it gives it gave women an opportunity to go travel by themselves, and they could be leaders. They could run schools. Um, they could make money. Like, or if they didn't make money, they could have a living. You know, that wasn't uh, determined by their fathers or their brothers. And they can be independent. So that's why sometimes when you look at something, someone like Alice Bailey, when you look at some of the criticisms about her and skepticism about her, it's like, oh, she, you know, she couldn't have written this. Oh, it was, you know, she plagiarized off of Charles Liebeter. She's actually, even though she doesn't think she's smart compared to having a sister who's actually a cancer researcher um, or had a cancer, who was a cancer researcher and a medical doctor back in the like the 1920s to 40s. So, you know, she came from a family that had a lot of scientists in it. Um, she was related to um, a couple of good astronomers. Um, she had a grandfather who I think probably had some interactions with Charles Darwin. You know, she had access to a lot of different, you know, a lot more educational opportunities than a lot of people actually give her credit for. It's just mm. that, you know, she didn't go to school. She decided to become an evangelist, a Christian evangelist <laughs> of all things. Right. And so that's what kind of makes it funny when you look at certain crit current criticisms of Alice Bailey today, because they're all just saying like, oh, this new world order, that's just Satan. You know, this is satanic. All of her suggestions are satanic. When actually the main criticism of her back in the time from Theosophists, when she was starting to break away from Theosophy, was uh, that she was too Christian. You know, she was injecting weight. She was trying to put weight, much more weight on Christianity and Christology than her predecessors like Vasant and who are a bit more, um, you know, about Buddha and Hindu. So the whole point of the article, though, was really just trying to focus, you know, I gave a lot of history and context of, you know, what Blavatsky did and, you know, why the Ascended Masters and, you know, how, why we can't verify the claims, you know, her claims regarding the Ascended Masters, because, I mean, from our perspective, they don't exist. It's, it's just, it, they don't. Uh, but then looking at how in that conflict between um, Annie Besant and Alice Bailey, kind of considering how Bailey tried to, again, reuse this pattern of, oh, yes, I talk to all the same people. My history is the same as Helena Blavatsky's. Of course, I should have this authority. And then moving on to what we see in Bruce Lyon's early work. It's almost sort of a similar trend. So you know. just for just for context quickly, Bruce sure. Lyon is, for listeners who haven't heard this name before. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, there's plenty of podcasts and several newsletter articles where we go to this in depth. But Bruce Lyon um, is a New Zealand entrepreneur, businessman who is associated with two different groups. One is the International School of the Temple Arts, which is sort of a neo-shaman, neo-tantra group. Um, that hosts several workshops around the world and in a couple in New Zealand. An attendee of one of these workshops sort of outlines what they're like in a podcast called Sex.Life. And then the second group he's part of, which is Hayden Temple. Um, Hayden Temple is a bit more of a magical belief system. It's based in a, a state outside of Palmerston North. And again, he uh, you know people spend thousands of dollars to go spend six weeks or so on this property in Palmerston North, and they do things that, you know, from from what I last hear, are very much based in the cosmology of Alice Bailey, with some other things that, you know, Bruce has picked up along the way, from what I've been told. And Bruce somehow has magical powers of a weird variety. Well, whether he has magical powers, I, I mean, I've been told he's been very, he's very charismatic. I guess it's his own type of magic. <laughs> But what I'm interested in and, you know, what, what your articles have been about is is channelers and channeling. And it turns out that Bruce Lyon has a claim of channeling, right? Yeah. So he claims to 
channel, um, Master DK, and the evolution of Master DK in terms of his standing in theosophy and then moving into Bruce's uh, belief system is very interesting. So with Helena Blavatsky and sort of what I guess you could say traditional theosophy, Master DK is, um, you know, is just another like a very a high, an adva highly advanced disciple of Kutumi and other ascended masters that Helena Blavatsky communicates with. When Alice Bailey comes onto the scene, like, you know, a couple of decades later, she really starts using, mentioning Dijual Cool a lot more, giving him a bit more of a personality. It's pretty much, even though she talks to Kutumi maybe one, a couple of times in her, in her biography, largely she does a lot of writing with Master DK. And Master DK's role is as a messenger between the Ascendant Masters and humanity to help humanity evolve and be ready for the year 2025. And this this abbreviation of his name... <laughs> no, no. This abbreviation of his name to the letters D and K, this, this is something that theosophy has been doing for years. They just know him as DK for yeah. ease of speaking. Yeah, uh, or K, uh, K Kutumi is K-H, though Moria is usually spelled Moria, but sometimes you, you see different spellings of it. Um, for the people who are particularly salty about Alice Bailey, the people go and look through her works and say, oh, you know, whenever she's writing as DK, he's, you know, they're using like this sort of different type of old English, like old English words. Um, do do say, what, have ye in there? No ye, <laughs> but like A-N-E-N-T, like, you know, really weird spellings. And that's sort of the hand wave is that, oh, you know, yes, there's obviously, diff obviously she's going to spell differently um, when she's writing without DK than when she's writing with DK. And this is just proof, this is just proof that DK had like a European, like life or European carnation at some point. Reincarnation. Okay. Yeah. I like that. That's a good excuse. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, Bruce, when we look at Bruce's history, very much involved in sort of the Alice Bailey side of, of things um, coming through the Mariah Federation and the University of the Seven Rays. So that's very much a education arm of this whole everything that's developed from Alice Bailey since she died in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, so Bruce has been channeling DK over the last what ten or twenty years? Yeah, like it, um, when he first, when you look at his early writings, he it, the dates kind of change. So it seems that he was certainly talking with DK, sort of like in the late two thousand, like two thousand and one, to alternately two thousand five. Then he says from two thousand one to two thousand seven, put out a couple books: Mercury Transmission, Group Initiation, and then apparently he's contacted by DK again in 2020 during the pandemic for a period of several months. And with those writings, you can see a marked difference between the topics that Bruce brings up. Because in the early writings, which is sort of when he first tried to run his magic school in Palmerston North in the 2000s, it was very idealistic, but it was also very strictly to the stuff that Alice Bailey wrote about. You know, he'd have work cited or references at the back of his writings that's just basically almost exclusively Alice Bailey. Yeah. And not a lot of sex. You know, there's a couple of writings that he does individually that, you know, you do hear sex as a is maybe a paragraph or two in some of his earlier writings. However, if you've been following the podcast and you've been following my writings, I do talk about that transition of Bruce from the early years of Haydn in the 2000s to how he gets into ISTA and what we see come out of his partnership with the International School of the Temple Arts and Baba Des and so on. Being something of a sex guru. Um, a sexual shaman. 
Sexual shaman. Oh, there we go. Technical term for it. I love it. And and so the the channeling that happened, the message from DK very much changed after Bruce got into sex. It turns out that DK also got into sex. Yeah. So, you, you know, it feels like, you know, when you go from Blavatsky to what Bailey wrote to what Bruce re- right, right, and the transition even within Bruce's own writing, it feels like a massive personality jump. How weird that that massive personality jump of the Ascended Master matched the personality change that happened within Bruce Lyon. Mm. It's almost like he should have started channeling, channeling somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If he'd made another name for him, maybe, yeah. Picked a new <laughs> Ascended Master, that probably would have looked less suspicious. Why not? Because it doesn't stop a lot of people. I mean, I was showing you, Mark, a uh, down in my local library, someone's going to be coming into the hut soon and actually doing a performance, I believe, in the adjacent theater. And they're going to be doing a channeling bit with some name I've never heard of. And my next piece in this whole series about channelers and New Zealanders, I'm going to be looking at a Christchurch, well, formerly Christchurch um, channeler. She's now in India, um, named Yasmin Clark, and looking at her double act with Pasha Rama. That should be fun. I mean, I still the thing I really want to do is go and see a channeler. Like the the idea of taking on this new personality and just acting out a bit. It's got to be fun to watch. But I guess I could say too, from the evidence that I have, and I guess this is to Bruce's credit, with the exception of this one thing that comes up in the book Sex Shamans. As far as I know, he doesn't tend to pull out Master DK as sort of someone who's going to go and tell people, oh, yes, I've contacted your dead family member. Oh, yeah, this is what's wrong with your life. This is what your past life is. This doesn't seem to be Bruce's shtick. Yeah. So he's not using it as a psychic trick. He's more using it as an authority thing. Look at me. An ascended master is communicating through me. Exactly. Exactly. Aren't I important? Yeah. Less not doing sort of the uh, not doing the Blair Styra stuff. He's definitely I'm being chosen to help lead you all into new evolution in spirituality. So presumably, as much as we're sceptical, his followers are not overly sceptical about this and seem to be happy accepting that Bruce has this ability to channel? Unclear, unclear. Um, Every time I find something new, I'm kind of always trying to go back to the old website records that we still have on archive.org and just to start see exactly where does certain things start getting mentioned. Like, I mean, there are a couple of people, you know, in terms of groups like Avatara and his trans international political party the singularity movement you know there's people who are into this for the cosmology reasons like you know the alice bailey stuff you know john yeah. eden khan yes he knows who alice bailey is he knows who master dk is this is so okay. but i think we a lot have, of people we... who are part of vista i don't think they're necessarily wholly aware sometimes oh not connection. even aware okay I, I can imagine for people that are more in it for the hippie sex stuff might get a little bit freaked out with the idea that this guy also channels an ascended master mm-hmm. that possibly you know for, for some of them would take a little bit of a mental leap mm-hmm. but um it seems that you know you know we aren't part of necessarily that subculture though you know we're kind of set apart we don't go to the festivals but it seems that you know having channelers and people who do that sort of thing and make those claims are very much integral to say NZ spirit or I mean it would really be interesting to talk to some of the people who attended these things and find out what they thought about it and whether how much they actually believed it was all true but I suspect that most of the people who are attending these things aren't critical thinkers and they probably don't you know just take whatever they want from it and take the other stuff with a grain of salt and I think I think we I think we always got to be careful that we're not um 
tarring everybody who goes to these festivals on the same <laughs> brush. I mean, I know Mark and I were kind of thinking about, you know, let's do an investigation. Let's go off and check out NZ Spirit, you know, and I'm mm. also pretty I'm into music. I, I mean, I like a good DJ set. I like I like a good chill or a trance or drum and bass like I'll get down, get down and boogie with the rest of them. Um, I think yeah, I think but I do think there's people who go to these festivals and they're looking for something. They're not looking for everything that the festival has to offer, but you know, they, there's something that they want there. Either it's community or a vibe or drugs or a chance to party and be out in the sun. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Bowman, we, we were talking about doing it this year, but time's run away from us. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe next year we'll go to the uh, New Zealand Spirit Festival and mm-hmm. get high on peyote and uh, lie in a puddle somewhere. Is, isn't, it ayahuasca? isn't it ayahuasca now? Uh, ayahuasca, you know, tends to make you drop your bowels a little bit too often for my liking. Like if I was able to wear an adult nappy, maybe I'd be all right taking ayahuasca. But short of that, I wouldn't want to risk it. Maybe you need to uh-huh. like, maybe you need to match ayahuasca with your colonic. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So I, I still haven't done my colonic. Look, here's my voucher. I messaged the woman who uh, who runs the the center that my voucher is for for my uh, my Christmas present colonic, and she says even though it's a year out of date, I'm still okay to use it. So I am booking my colonic for the next few weeks. I think as soon as Tim's back, one of our skeptics in the pub, Wellington members, as soon as he's back from Taiwan, um, because he's going to hold my hand. Uh, as are you, Bronwyn. I think we're we're going to be going. Up <laughs> I don't think so. Metaphorically I, holding I, my I, hand. I, I'm going to be there with a cell phone in the next room, being ready to call an emergency number. <laughs> yes, thank you. For I'm that. going to be the responsible healthcare professional in this whole scenario. But I will be booking it, and I I will be getting it done. Yes. But yeah, maybe 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 that just before ayahuasca might be a good idea. So I'm already flushed out, and there's less risk of a problem. <laughs> Well, I, I wonder how long uh, that colonic irrigation thing actually lasts because your body is pretty good at putting stuff back in to come out again. So, I mean, yeah, we're going to probably have, you a, might only have the... a day or so. That... Well, we're going to have a skeptics in the pub probably right after it. So it's just going to undo all the good work. Yeah, we figured we'd go and see the uh, the Palmerston North skeptics while we're there. So we're going to arrange or, an event or, that or, evening. Or, or, or the Palmerston North skeptic. Hello, Matt Willie. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's more than one. Yeah, surely there's more people than that who are skeptical in Palmerston North. Absolutely. Show yourselves. Mm. I've I've heard it's the most skeptical city in the entirety of New Zealand, <laughs> apart from Wellington. <laughs> well, yeah, we are we are pretty well represented here in Wellington. I think on our committee for the New Zealand skeptics, and with the kind of work that we do as well. Mm. Yeah, Auckland <laughs> needs to up its game, given you know how much bigger you guys are than us. They'll have a chance to prove it with the conference. Oh, yeah. Yes. Looking forward to the conference. Yes. Right. Date, dates to be announced. Indeed. Well, we're just waiting on the Australians. Mm. Nice. Who are in turn waiting upon, like waiting on a teacher's organization, aren't they? Mm, something like that. Anyway, it'll, it'll be sometime later in the year. Mm-hmm. The year has only just begun. So. Well, <laughs> if we're going to be um, closing out the episode, I think we'll just do some notices. Mm-hmm. Um. First of all, if you haven't become a member and you enjoy our podcast and you enjoy what we put out with a newsletter, consider joining. Mark, what's the membership email 
Or you don't website. email for membership. Do not email for membership. We don't take <laughs> checks. We don't receive emails. Go to skeptics.nz slash join. You can pay your $40 for membership, $20 if you're unwaged, or $60 for your entire family to become members. And they can all get that warm and fuzzy feeling. What if your family is the human race? Uh, no, no, that, that just does not work, I'm afraid. No. No, I I see I see your little loophole, and I will I will have to put something in our constitution that blocks that off. And now, in terms of um, upcoming skeptical events, well, this Friday, which is going to be uh, February 9th at six p.m., we have our regular skeptics in the pub Wellington meetup at the Intercontinental Hotel on Two Gray Street. But of course. We're not at the Two Gray Street restaurant. We are inside the hotel at the Lobby Lounge, which is just to the right or to the immediately to the right of the entrance when you go inside. That starts at 6 p.m. It's always a great time. There's a range of beverages, um, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, and both finger foods and full-on meals. Um, And then, Mark, what's coming up the week after that? Oh, that'll be um, skeptical activism. Um, So although it's, well, healthcare science-based healthcare activism in the pub, whatever the hell it's called. Um, At the moment, we are working on the plagiarism project that I've talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And good news, we have found someone who has access to Turnitin, um, and we've been able to use that. Bad news, the first book that we've pushed through this, a lot of the original sources that um, are linked to are offline already because the book is almost 15 years old um but yeah we are we are working hard on this project um i think it'll be a few more weeks before we're done maybe another month's worth of work um at the most but so next thursday in the pub the fork and brewer from 6 30 um you can come and join myself dan robin and whoever else is there and we will be basically trying to figure out just how prolific this particular author is with plagiarizing other people's work and then in dunedin they are still on hiatus so watch this space uh for their (laughs) next meeting and Auckland will have Skeptics in the Pub next Tuesday the 13th at the Dyson Fork. Of course, as I said last time, Tuesday the 13th of February is my birthday. Oh, so yes. if you're in Auckland, come along and uh, you can buy me a beer. But only one. Well, one each. That's still a lot of beers. <laughs> I don't want to overconsume. <laughs> yes, you definitely would not want to overconsume and drive. That would be very bad. Exactly. All right. Are we done then? I think that is it for this episode. Very good. You have been listening to the Yena podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can email us podcast at skeptics.nz and that will gain our attention. We will see you all next time. Bye. Kakike.